Welcome to GOLA. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author. And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine. This is one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> What's that? Listen to you talk and then I ask questions about, hey, what does that word mean? I mean, I like the idea of Gola becoming a podcast where I tell stories from the past and you ask questions about... Vocabulary. No, what about also like potentially off-color details. <laughs> well, there is going to be a whole <laughs> bunch of them in this, in this episode. We are going deep diving into Dante. I know. I'm, I'm excited about this one because um, I haven't been teaching for a little while now. It's over the summer. We're in Rome together. I had the spring semester off from teaching. I was working on my book on Dante and food in the late Middle Ages in Italy. And so I've been thinking about this a lot, but I haven't been lecturing about it as I normally would be. Yeah, it's rare that you get to sit across the table from a Dantista Instead of sometimes you go, you sit in a chair of a dentista, but this is a very different thing. And by the way, before we jump into it, if you haven't listened to the Matilde di Canossa episode, please go back and listen to that because it is so fascinating. And Danielle, who has 179 uh, advanced uh, level degrees, uh, graces us with all of the knowledge that she has uh, imbibed and then distilled for us in like a wonderful, wonderful form. So... I'm really stoked about this because I listened to a lecture that you did, actually a couple lectures that you did on Dante over the summer uh, via Zoom. You were presenting for a variety of uh, associations and societies. And I, you know, it really inspired me to like go over to Wikipedia and uh, dig deep into, <laughs> no, just kidding. Actually, I did go on Wikipedia because I was like, how old was Beatrice? What's good with this guy? What's his deal? What's a Guelph? So... Anyway, the Wikipedia was good for like a crash course in the rough details. Yeah. But even better is the uh, digital Dante source that you sent me to prepare yeah. for this episode. Yeah, absolutely. There are lots of good sources if anybody's interested in learning a little more about Dante before we get into it here. Of course, for Gola, I'm going to talk a little bit more than usual about Dante and food specifically because uh, while that's my research or my area of research right now in particular, it's also the thing that ties these subjects together. And so we're trying to give some more of the historical context because lots of our wonderful listeners have been asking for it, sort of to my surprise, although I guess I shouldn't be surprised since I'm also a person who dedicated their lives to that. So, <laughs> um, But uh, we hope that these will pair really nicely with the uh, Gola on the Road episodes that we've been doing or the callbacks to those times on the road that we've had and with our usual uh, attention for the different foods and beverages you can encounter in, in Italy, either now or historically. Yeah, let's do this. All right, Katie. Where are you going to start? How, does, how do you start this huge topic? We begin at the beginning, of course, which is... Dante's father, Don Al <laughs> Alghero Alghieri, loved his mother very much. Yeah, exactly. When, when two late medieval Italians are forced to marry as a result of family alliances. Now, um, actually, we don't know a, a ton about Dante's background, all things considered, but we do know that he was born in 1265, and we know that he died in 1321. So when I 
teach a class on Dante, I'll often start with that and then ask my students, why do they think I care about that? Because I'm actually not a historian, technically. I am a person who works on literature and then on um, food studies. So when it comes to nitty gritty details, I'm, I'm not usually all that concerned about, you know, memorizing dates. Um, but it's worth noting when Dante was alive, like we noted when Matilda of Conoso was alive, because it reminds us two things. One, this is the Middle Ages. And guess what? Important and interesting stuff is going on at the level of politics, economics, cultural development, and, and beyond, in the case of Dante, establishing what will become the Italian vernacular and making one of the most important texts of all time period in human history. But um, also... Being the divine comedy. Oh, yes. Yes. Sorry, I should add that. <laughs> three... Okay, so three books that you can go buy separately now, were they published as a single work or in little chapters? How did people encounter them? What's the deal with uh, the Divine Comedy? Okay, so um, Dante becomes famous for writing the poem, The Divine Comedy. When he's writing it, it is uh, being drafted in the way that you would find a medieval poet writing. So it's not going to be published because we're pre- publication in the way that we would define it now. It's obviously pre-printing press. and It's uh, even in a little bit more of an um, unofficial development in, in Dante's case. He's writing as he is in exile from his natal city of Florence, and he is uh, itinerant as a result of that. And we'll get back to that detail in a minute. Um, and he is producing the poetry slowly and probably doing quite a bit of revision along the way. We know that he circulated some of his work, both early, especially his earlier poetry, but some pieces of the Divine Comedy also. And we know that he um, eventually collected it all and wanted it to and uh, considered it a, a, a complete whole that should be read from beginning to end altogether. Um, people would have first encountered it mostly by oral presentation of the text, not because it wasn't available in copies that circulated. Handwritten certain, copies, I would imagine. Uh, yes, um, certainly. There are, uh, there are some kind of... Uh, pre-movable type printing press uh, technologies available at this time, but mostly it would be handwritten copies, usually of parts rather than the whole. Uh, and then people like Boccaccio, an author that some people might have heard of who comes after Dante, also from uh, Tuscany, also one of the kind of uh, fathers, I hate to use these words, but of Italian literature because he develops the... Only men had brains. Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, he is Dante's biggest fan and he... Uh, takes it upon himself to read pieces of the Divine Comedy outside in Piazza Santa Croce. So if you've been to Florence before, you will know Piazza Santa Croce because it is uh, a big, famous, beautiful piazza, and it is marked by a huge statue of Dante, which lords over it. Um, that is the space where Boccaccio stood on the stairs and read the poetry out loud and actually gave the poem its name, incidentally, because Dante called the poem the Comedy period. Uh, Boccaccio adds Divina in front of Commedia and, and calls it the Divine Comedy. And the Divine Comedy is a 
masterpiece for lots of reasons, um, largely appreciated in Italy for the development of Italian language that uh, came as a result of it and that is contained within it, um, but also because it is a kind of a, a compendium of all life at that time. The story of the Divine Comedy is actually the story of Dante traveling through the afterlife. But the way that he tells it is by encountering people he knew either at an individual level, in the case literally of some just friends that he runs into along the way who have died, uh, and then at the kind of grander historical level where he meets with uh, great leaders of Europe who are deceased or even um, biblical patriarchs or uh, many other traditions as well. Um, Dante, in telling this story, going through the afterlife from hell into purgatory and up into heaven, meeting people, gives us a portrait of how people lived at that time and the things that they considered important. And he uh, poses questions that are troubling to him and to his audience, we imagine, and uh, gives us context for how they might have come up with answers for those things. And that's where the food comes in, unsurprisingly, right? When someone's trying to write a story of how they live, the things that they care about, the things that keep them alive are a big part of that, and food is right there. But also the things that give them pleasure, and that's food again. So, you know, Dante is growing up in Florence. He's a politician. He's writing stuff. He is probably pretty famous at the time. Um that type of socializing in that social class, would that have been people in like Palazzi having big banquets? Is that what he was missing when he's exiled and I think never returns to Florence from 1301 to his death? Yeah. So you're... Uh, first thing is uh, establishing the exile part. You're right, really important to Dante's life and important to our ability to understand why the kind of cultural touchstones he provides us with are so loaded or charged at this time. Dante is a, 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 a leader of the city of Florence. He's one of the priors, the 12 priors who are appointed to govern the city. Um, his There's political infighting happening at the time. He's accused of stealing from the um, shared um, budget, the city budget, basically. And uh, whether or not that's true, it probably isn't, not because Dante is so pure, but because um, we know that several other people also had the same charge levied against them. And it, it, it's basically perfectly along um, political alliance uh, or, or animosity lines. Um, Dante, uh, having been accused, is uh, first uh, told that he could pay a fine and be basically shamed in front of the city. Uh, then he is ultimately uh, given a death sentence as a result of not uh, returning to the city, although that's kind of a long story. That's and really then, harsh. Yes, it's pretty harsh stuff. Um, but what? But I think you would, were telling me earlier that he got the death sentence because he didn't show up for court, but he was like... There was a siege, so he couldn't get to town? Yeah, it's not, it wasn't the most fair of trials, any part of it, really. He ends up in exile. He ends up uh, moving around the Italian peninsula at the time. And then um, because of that, he is uh, telling us things about what he misses about the place that he is from and the things that he encounters in new places. So we're also getting a picture of cultural relativity at the time, right? Dante is a Florentine and a Tuscan, and now he has to be hosted by others as he writes his poetry and he uh, 
tries to find a good place to sleep and eat. So you, to your to your point, Kate, before exile, what kind of life was he living? It would have been at a, a slightly different level, something in between that was emerging in Florence at this time and growing, which is to say he's part of a, a kind of wealthy, so almost aristocracy. But his family in particular was actually upwardly mobile at the time. So the fact that Dante was moving into that space was um, a, a new thing for him. And then they're not part of a kind of royal lineage or a monarchy. There isn't a, a great house with a huge developed court at, at Florence at the time. Instead, there are families with wealth that would have been hosting some substantial and impressive meals, definitely, regularly. Um, but Dante also would have been in a kind of bohemian intellectual atmosphere, hanging out with his poet friends, going to local taverns sometimes, which are very much available as some kind of public house in the sense of places that would um, have uh, a house wine and uh, a meal available for people who were traveling through the city or who were out and about from their country house that day, things like that. Did you like wine? He sure did, and I can tell you why. And just uh, I'll, I'll, should I walk in twenty us all minutes? There? Okay, yeah. Let me let me get us just to the the point that you're talking about, which is is a great one. Which is you know what's the context for how people are enjoying food at the time? So so Dante's somewhere in between that, and and ironically, when he goes into exile, he probably ended up in situations with grander uh, kind of feasting and uh, more formal dining because he was the guest of aristocracy at a higher level in places like Verona and then uh, Ravenna, where he eventually dies in 1321. But um, he was in an in-between space. So he would have also kind of experienced some more uh, would-be middle-class food lifestyle choices, right? Um, Having to do the work of producing one's own bread and wine, for example, doing some subsistence subsistence farming, even um, having uh, some uh, relationships of barter where, you know, your family has certain animals, certain produce available, and someone else maybe has an alimentare with uh, uh, prosciutto in the city and you trade for those things, stuff like that. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So many questions. Well, let's start with the wine then. I mean, Dante like wine. Here's a, here's a great one because people have a tendency to think that in the Middle Ages in general, but in the past also even more broadly, that people only had bad wine. Um, that's not the case. Um, palates change and interests change and the way wine is made has changed. But uh, we've talked about this on the podcast lots of times. People in the past not only had good wine, they knew what wine was good and what wine was bad. They uh, cellared very good mm-hmm. wine. They gifted wine that they knew to be of quality. They paid extra to get wine that wasn't from their area that was considered excellent. So um, certainly in like a broader context, people are enjoying wine. And in the Divine Comedy, Dante actually makes reference to wine lots of times. He makes reference to it in uh, a metaphor where he explains that the way human souls are made is the way that uh, is, is parallel to the way sun acts on grapes and makes them into wine. So calls us basically fermented little babies. And, <laughs> um, and he uses that why, right? He uses that because he knows that people 
understand wine, right? That's the thing. Like people in in Italy at the time have grapes growing outside. They leave them to ferment to make some wine and enjoy it, right? And so that's how he explains something that's hard to understand. He says, you know what? Bodies and souls and our connection to to between this world and the next is really hard to understand. But you know what it's like? It's like something that you do know about. It's like something that's has some magic and mystery behind it, but that isn't so scary or so overwhelming um, or that it doesn't require that you study philosophy and theology for your whole life. You you can approach it in some way. And that's the kind of thing that you find when you're reading Dante and that allows you to uh, continue to interact with it, even though it's a poem from 700 years ago. Is there any morality placed on wine consumption throughout the Divine Comedy? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked this one. Um, I can think of a few examples, actually, but one in particular that I've uh, thought about a lot and written about is the figure of Martin IV. Our listeners have heard me bring this up before because he's infamously placed in purgatory for having enjoyed too much uh, to, too much of a certain dish, which is eels in wine, eels cooked in vernaccia in particular. And if we look at Dante, you know, bringing that up when he's on the terrace of gluttony and purgatory, where souls are doing their penance for, for being glut, for having a tendency towards gluttony, but wanting mercy and, and thus having an, uh, a way of accessing heaven. Dante is you know, bringing up something that seems kind of funny and anecdotal, like, oh, look at that guy, Martin the Four, the Pope. Oh my God, he's so gross. He was always just like eating too many eels and wine. But by telling us about that, first of all, he tells us that there's a specific dish that exists at the time that people considered to be delicious and rare and worth, you know, tracking down. And then he also tells us that uh, there's a specific wine that not only is, you know, in existence, but that must be recognizable, right? Because if he's writing about it, we know that he's putting it there because he knows his readers will know what it is. So he says vernaccia. He doesn't say white wine. Everyone who's reading, he must presume, or, you know, nearly a a general population of readers is going to know what that is, which means to us that people at that time are not just enjoying white wine, appreciating, they know where that grape is from, right? They have a relationship yeah, with it. They're identifying a and naming that white white Tuscan grape. Exactly. exactly. And eels, I'm sure anyone who has eaten an eel knows that it's super rich. And so it's like synonymous with this overindulgence and, and gluttony. Also, can you eat it during Holy Week? Is it a Good Friday dish? Does it pass? I believe that passes. So uh, exactly the kind of thing you would see. You, I mean, think of all the layers there as Dante is pointing to that as a, a consumption practice that needs to be purged. A person who's supposed to be representing a kind of asceticism and austerity in the, as the head of the church, turning around and going into his room and eating a big bucket of, of rich, fatty eels in this, you know, acidic, bright, uh, love, really, you know, delicate, briny white wine from the coast of Tuscany going up into Liguria. I mean, it's, uh, it's funny. 
it's pithy, right? Because it quickly communicates something that actually on many levels has has meaning. Um, but it also does the job, right? It's like clearly whoever's reading figures out, you know, Dante is making a comment about somebody shirking their responsibility and caring more about themselves and enjoying themselves than others. Totally. So in this, also in this sort of eel subject, I just want to touch on something. <laughs> the terrain of... Tuscany and Emilia-Romagna is very, very different in this time, particularly the abundance of waterways and stagnant ponds and things. Eels in some parts of this area in Italy are, you know, common enough, but super small realities. Um, But they used to be a lot more pervasive when the terrain was different and there were lots of like little tributary streams and not just, you know, the Po River like bumbling along. Yes, yes, definitely. And in fact, eels come up all the time, not just on the Gola podcast, but also in other literature. Boccaccio actually has a novella dedicated to a figure that appears in Dante's Divine Comedy who also goes and gets sort of embroiled in a a sticky situation as a result of his desire for uh, specifically lamprey. So good. I I love it. Yeah, I mean, Martin IV would have had a huge huge amount of eel available to him in the Tiber River. Anyone heading up north in uh, like around Modena could have tapped into the eel sources there. I I assume the Arno in Florence has eels. I got to assume. Oh, yeah. And Martin IV was actually crowned at Avignon, not at Rome. Oh, yeah, the Avignon exile. Exactly. So he would have been more likely to be in north central Italy as a result of that if he was traveling down here. Yeah. So That's right. Yeah. Just a mere 70-year period that I I overlooked. Well, it's not. It's actually just crazy because there's the... The, the captivity period for the popes there is bizarre. But Fascinating. Anyway. What about the religious implications of wine? Is there like any Eucharistic illusion, stuff like that happening? Absolutely. I mean, Dante, the Divine Comedy is a poem that's based on a Christian paradigm. So while Dante is a really comprehensive and kind of universal poet who gives all kinds of information about all different kinds of thought and comments on a lot of different both faith practices and sort of self-knowledge practices and spirituality. Um, He is still giving a sort of, uh, or laying out, uh, we could say, a path towards communion with God that is uh, very much familiar to a standard Christian doctrine, even if he kind of colors outside the lines a bunch of times. Um, But when it comes to bread and wine in the Divine Comedy, we know that valence is absolutely present. It can't not be for any Christian at the time. Um, But it's also, I think, a sort of um, indirect reminder of why those symbols are so important and how they become integrated into that uh, that religious doctrine and that and that kind of grander landscape. It's because of that uh, familiarity, that universality, that intimacy. People in Italy are 
eating bread and drinking wine all the time. It's a part of the everyday diet. So it has this quotidian element to it, which is like, I know exactly what that is. That's very familiar. And then it's also infused with this, you know, very powerful and important element of the faith practice. And of course, of being part of a community, right? The way that you join together is by receiving those elements and making them part of yourself. So for Dante, the idea of eating is, you know, operating on all of these planes at the same time. One is we have a physiological, biological impetus towards eating food. We need food to stay alive. So everybody must eat. Then there's the fact that on any given day, any part of our lives, we have a relationship with food that's colored by our social cultural context, the values that we talked about before, moral, ethical ones, but also economic ones, political ones, availability issues, things like that. And then, of course, there's this next level, this idea that we can join together with something greater than us by the practice of exchanging food and of putting it into our bodies, that kind of still to this day, impossible to track process of digestion, right? Like the thing that is least well known about our bodies is the gastrointestinal tract because there are no boundaries. There's like all kinds of wacky stuff going on. And Dante's very interested in that. Yeah. And let's not forget another important point, the pleasure that you take in complaining when you're traveling that the food you're eating is not as good as the food you have at home. Oh, God, if if ever there were an Italian cliche that we could lean on, we... Dante delivered us one, didn't we he? We have the best example of all time. Dante is in the context of his poem, Traveling Through the Afterlife, but in the uh, view of the character, he, he does not yet know that he is going to be sent into exile. And so the character of Dante in his poem is... Uh, is made privy to this information and and has to deal with this, you know, this crushing blow of finding out that he will be sent into exile. And the way that information is presented to him is through a message from his ancestor in heaven uh, who tells him, in the future, you will know how salty another's bread tastes, meaning that Dante will go to a place where the bread doesn't taste like what he's used to eating at home. Some people have said, as you might well expect, because if you've been to Tuscany, you've tasted this, uh, that this is because Tuscan bread is traditionally unsalted. It's not certain that that was actually the case at Dante's time. That practice may have been uh, introduced a little bit later. What is certain is that Dante is telling us that different regions make bread differently. And when you're not home, not in the area you're from, you will taste that difference. And it's actually, it's an incredibly moving moment in the poem, of course. I mean, imagine um, someone right in exile, writing to himself through the voice of his grandfather to his more naive younger self, you're going to have to face the ultimate challenge. You're going to be banished from everything you know. You will never be able to have any of the comforts of home again. And the way that he says that to him is, the the, the way that he distills that for him is, you're going to taste something that isn't the comfort food, that isn't attached to your place, that isn't what you identify with. You're going to be alone and you will be different from everyone around you. And you're going to have to 
deal with that. And Dante accepts that at the time as the challenge that he has been given and what he claims is makes him ready to write this poem and share all these things with his audience. So it's in the third part in Paradiso that he learns about this. Yes. Man, that must have sucked. Yeah, it was uh, clearly not great. For, for At least it. you didn't hear about it in like the first canto of the <laughs> of the Inferno. That would have been what would have been a sadder <laughs> story. This the story of the Pilgrim Dante and Divine Comedy is a tough one. He's getting a lot of he, he gets to do something that has never been done. This amazing journey through the afterlife, but he also gets some very hard lessons and some hard pills to swallow along the way. So aside from the vernacha and eels and the saltless, perhaps saltless or under-seasoned <laughs> bread or just bread that tastes different than home, what other food analogies are made, allegories? Also, what What's going on in the food that, that, uh, that you've investigated? So I think maybe this is going to sound bizarre, but maybe the most interesting thing about the foods that Dante tells us about in the Divine Comedy. And there are a whole bunch of others. I mean, he compares something to a a black as a a peppercorn. He um, talks about other kinds of uh, wines along the way that people overindulge in. He uh, makes uh, reference to things like butchering practices and agricultural techniques. I mean, there's, there's so much to go on. What's Maybe the thing that stands out the most is that in in the beginning, so going back to Inferno, to the the um, infernal landscape that Dante uh, has to uh, journey through in order to get through purg- up to purgatory and then into heaven, uh, it, when he reaches the the circle of gluttony, Dante tells us about all kinds of stuff going on there. And he dialogues with a figure called Chaco while he's there. But they don't talk about food at all. And this is actually basically what my book is about (laughs) largely, which is, you know, what is gluttony if it's not food, if it's not about food? And why is it important at all? And why does it keep coming up? Why does Dante constantly use food? Why is there a thread of gluttony along the way? And the reason is because... Dante, or the reason that I propose as I'm um, working through my research and dialoguing with other people who think about this all the time, is that gluttony is much more than that, right? That it can't just be about food because food isn't just about you or I eating too much. It's about knowing yourself. It's about understanding control and temperance, about a happy medium, about health of the body, literally, like the physical health of the body, but also how that affects the health of the mind and the soul, or what you might call your intellect or spiritual presence, if you're not Dante. Um, It's about community, about creating bonds and maintaining them. It's about governing and politics, taking care of the people you have been put placed, uh, you have been given responsibility for, we should say. Um, It's about reaching towards something greater than ourselves, right? And that's, um, I think, you know, when we were thinking about what we wanted to call our podcast and we came up with Gola, no doubt most people thought it was just because we like the thought of eating and drinking too much. And that's definitely there. But it's also because the idea of your consuming practices 
having all of these effects on yourself and on the greater community and being aware of that and constantly troubling that and questioning it and seeing how you can become better at using your consuming practices and the foods that you eat and the uh, beverages that you drink to be a better participant and to do better by yourself. Can I treat you some to some vernacca and eels now, Danielle? I'm so ready. We had a long day in the studio. This has been an absolute blast as always. I feel really viziata because getting to just talk and talk and talk about the things that I care about while you punctuate it with interesting questions is uh, a big ego stroke. I hope I have not overly bored our listeners with excessive historical and literary material and that they will take this with their aperitivo out for a stroll and some good digestion of facts right now. Buon appetito. Grazie. Arrivederci. Ciao. We love our supporters and hope you become one too by visiting patreon.com backslash golapod. And now is the special shout out time for those who support us at the Giotti level. So thanks so much to Gabe Del Virginia of New York City and our buddies, Allison and Gino Ruggiero of Fiorella in Rochester. We also have our wonderful friend Leah at Semolino Artisanal Pasta in Pasadena, California, and Bobby Mazzulo at Mazzulo Pizzeria in Sacramento. Join us for more content, early access, special discounts, and news of everything Gola in advance on patreon.com backslash golapod.